Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this wild aisle writing cast. I have back with me Torin Fletcher, also known as Agrippa in many spaces here on the internet. How are you doing, Torin? I'm good. How are you? I am doing excellently. This is a conversation. I always say this, uh, but it's always true. Uh, this is a conversation I'm actually really excited to have uh, because it covers something that is actually very close to my heart, particularly my authorial heart. Is that how I conjugate author? I think so. And we're going to be discussing what I have dubbed literary alchemy from iron gold. This has to do with prose quite uh, quite a lot, particularly composition and also character interiority all those things that go into what we might call literary fiction that i would not call literary fiction but we will get into that as the course of the conversation progresses uh, but first i'd like to send you all over to wildislelit.com that's right my website where you can check out a number of things uh, including something i might read from today maybe we'll see uh in the excerpts page where I've got short fiction, flash fiction, all kinds of things for you there. I've got an essays page as well. Uh, check those out. I need to write more of them, but the Barbie analysis is still quite popular. Um, I also have my master's like thesis. It's not really a thesis. It's a giant essay I wrote uh, in grad school on the dream quest of unknown Kadoth. Uh, so check that out as well. Um, I've got my novel up there too in audio. I'd like uh, for all of you to give that a listen, Want Smoke Broken, the whole thing available, read, read not written, read to you for free. Um, and you can pick up a copy on Amazon if you are the reading type. I would appreciate it. Leave a review on Amazon. It would go quite a long way. And if you're an author out there and you're looking to develop your prose in the way that this conversation will hopefully go, check out the Wild Isle Style Guide. That is my specialty ed line editing service. Uh, I also do analysis based on thematic depth for those of you who like symbolism in your work. If you're a fan of Carl Jung, the psychologist, or Jordan Peterson, um, you'll appreciate that as well. Uh, as long, so check that out, the Wild Isle Style Guide, and I think I have shield enough for wildislelit.com. Um, Torn has informed me that he doesn't have anywhere to send people uh, quite yet, but when he does, I will surely push you over there because I've seen Torn's work with his artwork and his uh, written work, and they are both excellent, which is why I invited you here today, Torn. Okay, so with all of that out of the way, um, I want to start with some, I don't want to call them definitions, but perhaps understanding, right? So I'll give a little bit of framework and I'll pitch you a question once I come up with it. Uh, so there is, I've noticed, a, let's say, dichotomy, right? Um, two separate camps. Then this, these camps have existed for quite some time. Um, and I think they are, uh, let's say, separating even further when I think they should be coming together. I mentioned it earlier. Uh, I think the easiest way to describe this is the difference between literary fiction and genre fiction. Now, I don't think that division exists. Um, I think it is arbitrary, and I hope we can break it down. But when I say those words, literary fiction and genre fiction, uh, what comes to mind to you? You can pick which one you want to take, literary or genre. Uh, you mean like uh, what comes to mind for both of them specifically, like the distinction between them? Yeah. 
Uh, genre fiction tech, uh, pretty much just uh, makes me automatically think of, uh, I don't even want to say pulp, but just, you know, fantasy, uh, sci-fi, uh, pretty much almost, um, I guess, like, really just, uh, yeah, just anything that's outwardly, I suppose, fantastic. Um, literary fiction is, uh, I, I don't know, I'm actually not too familiar with that term, even though I've uh, thrown it around. I suppose it just kind of makes me think of, like, just, uh, I guess, any type of, uh, of, um, fiction, I suppose. I don't know, actually, yeah, I guess I, I would kind of need the uh, distinction fleshed out. Right, so I'll cover the literary side of things. So, um, I have been to grad school, so I got exposed to this firsthand. Um, and a lot of people, when they hear literary fiction, what they think of is uh, pretentiousness, most fundamentally, unless you're an academic, and then you think it's like, this is the real artful fiction. Um, and the way that I notice it gets, uh, let's say, distinguished from genre fiction typically, is that there's ostensibly um, a focus on theme more than in genre fiction. So I would say it's thematically driven in the way that you might say a story is plot driven or character driven. Literary fiction ostensibly is theme driven. Um, there is a focus on the artful composition of the prose. So what that means is the writing itself is viewed as an art form. It's not just about what is said, but also how it's said. Right. In the same way you could build a you could sculpt something and you could choose to sculpt a particular image, but also uh, the quality of the sculpture itself is something to focus on. And I've noticed that literary things that are called literary fiction are typically, as you kind of pointed out, in opposition to genre fiction set in a contemporary setting. Uh, it's not always the case, uh, but there are, let's say, they in academia they produce subgenres in order to try to make what they'll call literary fiction as distinguishable as they can manage from let's say something like fantasy science fiction and all of that for instance um, the subgenre magical realism is a way of sneaking fantastical elements into a, a contemporary setting so that it's uh Let's say you can basically so you can call it something else and not call it like fantasy or urban fantasy or something that you might distinguish as genre fiction. So those are the three things I have in my notes here. Thematically driven, artful composition, and typically but not always some form of contemporary setting. Um, does, now, Hello. does that make sense to you when, I, when I'm pitching that as a, the genre, a definition for literary fiction? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I, yeah, I can completely see the distinction now. Yeah, that would be like a lot of the classics, right? Uh, classic works. Now, it's funny because they are set in a historical setting given us because time moved. But in their own time, they were typically set somewhat contemporary. Now, uh, I have in here my notes. I'll go ahead and throw up a definition for genre. That genre, And I find that genre fiction is typically plot-driven, perhaps character-driven, as opposed to theme-driven. Um, we've got a, now I would disagree that this is a necessity, but if I go with what the mainstream definitions are, it's formulaic content via tropes or genre expectations. Uh, we have that word genre expectation. I think a lot of people think that has to do with the quote unquote genre of the book. And, you know, here, if you are a listener to the wild owl podcast, how I feel about 
the contemporary use of the word genre. I think it is uh, without an essence fundamentally, but genre expectations, I think actually comes from the word genre, like, uh, like genre fiction, right? So this entire scope of fiction that's seen to be lower class, be, to be more crass, not as artful, is a formula for a market for commercial fi fiction that utilizes, uh, you know, cookie cutter tropes to fulfill the expectations of the readers. Um, that I think is the common idea of genre fiction. And you mentioned the fantastical or science fiction setting, right? So the setting is not the mundane contemporary world most often. Now, you know, genre fiction also includes like romance novels and murder mysteries. So that bit of the, uh, that bit of the, the definition kind of goes out the window, even though I think most people would, would recognize it as part of the definition. So that's genre fiction. Now, I've said it multiple times that I don't think this distinction is real. Um, Torin, perhaps you've seen it already. What is the problem with trying to classify fiction into two types this way? And very briefly, so that you've got it fresh in your mind, so that the listeners also have it fresh in their minds. What, what's wrong with saying literary fiction is uh, thematically driven, contemporarily set, and focuses on the art of a composition, whereas genre fiction is plot or character driven, uh, uses tropes to meet genre expectations, and has typically uh, some unreal or fantastical setting. What's wrong with that distinction, if, if anything? Do you see anything wrong with it? I would say the first thing that comes to mind is that it just kind of a uh... It, uh, it basically, you know, forces kind of this uh, role, you know, it kind of like pigeons, pigeonholes thing, because at least, you know, just thinking on my own work, I don't see why, you know, a work cannot be both, I suppose. Yeah, pigeonholes is a good term for it, right? Like, um, the question that comes to my mind is, why is it that, let's say, some, like, why can't a fantasy story be thematically driven is there a reason can you think of one because i can't yeah neither can i right or you could say the same thing like why is it that something that is artfully composed why can that not be plot driven yeah i don't know you know it's kind of at a loss to me i guess like I guess like the only thing I can think of is like maybe like a lot the average reader or something just of that genre is kind of like just kind of come to expect it, you know, that they just want the story and nothing else, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, now, Torin, are you familiar with my diatribe on tropes? I don't think so. No. No. Okay. Well, before I do, because I've been hogging the conversation, what do you think about tropes? Like, are, are you super familiar with the term and how it's used? Like, tell me, tell me everything you know about tropes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I actually I used to lurk the uh, TV tropes forums like you know religiously way back in the late two thousands. Um, pretty much. Uh, I, I actually I see nothing wrong with them. I actually think they're a good thing. I I do not think they're uh, cliches, which uh, some people do. Um, I actually yeah I think uh, they very obviously serve their purpose. Uh, I don't see you know anything wrong with occasionally you know subverting one or. Uh, what have you, but usually, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I generally, yeah, I have a pretty positive view on tropes and I do think they're necessary.
if you had to define them, how would you define a thing as a trope? Like, how do I know a trope when I see it? I guess, like, the best way I would say is that it's basically a commonly recognized uh, storytelling or setting, or I guess you could even say character device. That's a pretty good definition. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, okay, so here, I'm going to see if I can do this live. I might embarrass myself. Let's see. Um, I'm going to make an argument that um, tropes are uh, contingent, which means that they are um, not, let's say, they don't hold up their own existence. Here's what I mean. So I agree with that definition. That's typically the way it's used. And you know, when people use the word trope, they mean something that's commonly recognized, like a commonly recognized storytelling device. I think that's a really concise, nice way to put it. Um, the problem is, okay, so if it's commonly recognized, but to who and at what time? And there, there becomes this problem, right? Where if I say, okay, a trope is a trope when it's commonly recognized, but let's say that it is a trope like could say that but it's a trope that you've never heard of so when you first experience it you experience it as something totally novel is it a trope or is it not a trope or is it both a trope and not a trope or is a trope only a trope if it's a trope to you but but not if it's not a trope to you or does it still count if the people around you would all recognize it as a trope that's a good question i in at least in my mind i would say it's a trope even if it's like I would basically, if I encountered a completely new one, I would basically just think of, you know, the author as essentially the trope setter, if that makes yeah, any sense. Yeah, but what if the author, um, what if you knew it was a trope and the author didn't? Was it a trope when the author wrote it, or did it become a trope when you read it? Or was it a trope when he wrote it? And also, like, I, what about, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I guess, like, yeah, that's, I, I, I guess, like, this kind of, like, it, might be i i personally would say it's a trope you know regardless of if the uh author like intends it to be or not but i suppose you know the author might disagree other readers might disagree uh yeah it, it's 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 a funny thing right because like the, i think the example i used is like a thing could be a trope in english but not in french and then is it's both a trope and not a trope because the French would see it as not a trope, but then it must be a trope if it's a trope in English. But then the question is, okay, that's a difference in language. What's what? Uh, let's say differences apply. Like, does time apply? Because a thing before it's commonly known um, isn't a trope, right? But then after it's commonly known, it is. But then let's say that all the people who know it's commonly known are wiped out. But then it's not. But people had identified it as a trope in the past. So does it stay a trope forever? Or is it only a trope so long as people had identified it as such? And if it works retroactively, why doesn't it work before? Because if a thing's going to become a trope, then it would have been a trope before it was identified as a trope. Because it, you see what I mean? Like it's uh, the word is used as a means to identify something that is contingent upon a state of affairs. So I'm not identifying a thing. I'm identifying a state of affairs. Oh, right, right. Yeah, no, that's honestly, that is a good question. Yeah, right. And it, it comes to um, identify the fact that, okay, if, why did I go on that little diatribe, right? I think I, I went on that diatribe because the idea that there are genre expectations, that's contingent upon the idea that 
do there can be tropes, but the problem is expectations are just as contingent as tropes are, right? Um, and so to try and suggest that there is a you could categorize something based on a set of contingencies, you can, but the category is as arbitrary as any other categorization based on contingencies. There is not an emergent category that has any reflection on anything in the objective. And that's why I actually think that this literary genre distinction is actually quite false. Um, and why does that matter, right? Why is this why is this coming to be relevant to the conversation? Well, uh, lately I've been made aware over the past you know, months uh, of the Iron Age movement. I, it was going on for a time and I was totally deaf and blind to it because I had my head buried in the sand trying to uh, you know, finish my own fiction to be to be perfectly honest and doing all my other things. Um, and I think that's going to be relevant to the conversation going ahead. So Torin, what's your familiarity with like the whole Iron Age movement? Are were you are you in that sphere or are you like separate from it like I mostly am? I guess you could say I'm actually uh, quite familiar with it. Um just because I've been following a lot of these types of things just with, you know, the mainstream kind of locking a lot of uh indies out, you know, of a lot you know, a lot of these uh publishing houses. So I, I kind of keep track of these movements for a while, but I mostly I'm really just a lurker. I, I you know, I kind of I monitor these spheres, but I don't interact with anyone in there as of yet. So mm, that's so, that's pretty yeah. much my familiarity. Playing it safe. What can you tell us about it? Like what's your take on uh on what like what is the Iron Age in terms of, you know, fiction and publishing? Like, you know, say assume that the listener doesn't know. I basically like, I guess like, you know, it's not entirely pulp, but I'd say that it's almost kind of like a, a pulp revolution. In fact, uh, before the Iron Age actually even got a name, that's kind of like, that was, uh, I would almost say kind of the proto movement. It was basically, you know, it's a lot of these uh, disaffected authors, uh, many, many of whom are indie, that basically, obviously, you know, they saw uh, not only kind of this state of, um, uh, you know, just a lot of the output of this, you know, these um, modern publishing houses. I'm sure everybody listen, you know, listening knows what I mean uh, without me having to get political. But, you know, there's also the fact a lot of these people were kind of um, blacklisted and gatekept out due to uh, nepotism. But uh, it basically, yeah, it's it almost kind of seemed to have started as this desire to kind of revolve or sorry, revive, um, you know, these basically uh, a lot of uh, old school stuff is what i would say uh you know old school fantasy old school sci-fi also of course the uh desire to take it away from you know basically its current iteration which is pretty much just you know political uh propaganda essentially you know there's this desire to bring escapism and entertainment back you know into the uh literature world yeah, I, I think that's that seems to be what I've I've seen from my little outside view, and that seems to be what the people inside are saying, right? Um, they're trying to bring back, uh, and what they typically say is like an era where, you know, fiction was actually entertaining, and to take it back from its ideological capture, uh, which it certainly has been captured. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to query agents. Have you ever given that a go? 
Oh, I, I wouldn't even bother just because I know what the answer is going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. Um, I, I, when I was trying to publish uh, my first novel, Salt, Sand, and Blood, I did the traditional querying route for an agent. Now, the, the book had its own problems, so I don't think I was going to get an agent regardless of the state of affairs. But you go around to most of their websites, and there are some people who are interested in uh, like making money, which... You know, the, we it's terrible. We say the good old days, like back when it was just greedy, like you know, in it for the money. That was great. Now it's like you have this ideology where you show up and it's like, oh, I'm only taking submissions from LGBTQ plus. They didn't have a, the the two soul candidate and add that on there yet. But uh, but yeah, um, you know, it was either that or only taking uh, submissions from like. You know, like, what is it? I think this is British with like the black and minority ethnic type deal. Uh, so like, you know, basically having a, I was surprised this was legal, like a no whites allowed sign, but they had those in a lot of places. Um, yeah. And so that was the state of that. The, the ideological capture, you see that in the reduction of quality, um, you know, by the, not just the, yeah, I'd say mostly the trad publishing space. And I have a question written down here on my notes. It's like, what, what are, you know, modern storytellers trying to achieve? And in this case, you've got a huge mass of them who are essentially just trying to impose cultural and political dominance, right? Like that's what that is, the, the ideology uh, coming in and infecting and destroying the quality of work. So no doubt that that's there. Uh, but I've actually... I have I have some questions in regard to Iron Age as well, because um, Torn, you know, obviously we both agree that what's coming out of trad publishing in the mainstream is all like mostly ideological garbage. Um, have you seen better quality outside of that um, in the indie space, uh, or I should ask that question better? Do you see mostly better quality? Because obviously we're going to see good quality peep out in the trad space and in the indie space. There's no doubt that we're going to find good works. But for the most part, do you see that the quality of the work coming out of the indie space is much better than the trad space? It's kind of, at least for me personally, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, I suppose. Um, I've seen some really good stuff and... I've seen some stuff that was, uh, you know, well, I guess like technically it still would be better than, you know, the average thing that's coming out of, you know, any of the mainstream publishers these days. It uh, Definitely, uh, I've seen a lot of stuff that, you know, just for various reasons um, did not work for me. Uh, what, what are you saying that doesn't work for you? Because obviously with the trad space, it's probably going to be, uh, to, to speak frankly, the uh unnecessary wokeism that's put in that's trying to beat you over the head with its political stick and say like we are the good people we are for good things look how good we are for good things agree with us politically or you're a bad person like that's what you get out of the the trad space right um but what are you saying that is striking you the wrong way on the indie space i don't want to like name anyone's specific work but yeah, a lot of the stuff that <laughs> that has uh rubbed me the wrong ways has kind of been in the uh Kind of in the, I think I've mentioned this before, you know, not on this podcast, of course, but it's, it's stuff kind of like around, you know, genres that where you kind of really get to these self inserts like lit RPG. That's, that's a big offender, 
you know, lately. And a lot of those are indies, you know, and a lot of it is just, you know, kind of what you'd expect when, you know, you don't really put the reins on, you know, some of what uh, is coming into here, you know, just, uh, just these weird power fantasies, um, you know, just self inserts, uh, you know, stuff like that, just justifications for what I would call uh, pretty negative character traits. Yeah, which is funny because we see that on the trad end too. It's like the um, the kind of woke villain presented as a hero. Uh, I guess we get, we see that on the indie space. In fact, I think uh, for those of you who know Captain Michael uh, Aternus over on Minds, if you want to go see his work, um, he talked about this with me when we talked about writing good, like good as in like justice, virtue, that you get this kind of um, viciousness uh, on both sides where you have what essentially amounts to, well, it could amount to a couple different things. Um, I don't want to talk too much, but are are you familiar with this is a wild eye idea? I came up with this talking. It's not my idea really fundamentally. Uh, I, I came with, up with it talking to Nathan Cumberledge. We did a podcast a while back about art versus escapism and we actually came to discover it's not art versus escapism there's a spectrum and at one end is escapism in the middle is art and on the far end is propaganda are you familiar with that concept uh no but that actually that makes a lot of sense to me actually yeah right for those of you who haven't heard it uh, i'll repeat it very shortly essentially you have art in the middle and that's a genuine human asking a genuine human question so it's a question you don't have an answer to it's a problem that you need to solve and it relates to you as a human being as you relate to the world and how other people human beings relate to the world and the story goes about trying to answer that question that's the theme that gets produced and on the two ends you have escapism and the escapism doesn't actually try to solve any problems the escapism is like it's like candy it's like uh, a line of cocaine or uh, like a, a shot of a heroin, like you are in it just for the pleasure of it without any problems being solved. It's mere titillation without the question, whereas propaganda is the exact opposite. So where escapism is, would say, pure bestiality, or I don't want to call it, call it that, it's bestialness, <laughs> right? Yeah, about to, about to say that word wrong. Uh, it, it's being, uh, it's, it's, it's stripping out the human and leaving only the animal. Right, I know humans are animals, uh, but you, you get the idea where propaganda is stripping out the human and not leaving any animal at all. It is, I already have the answer and I'm going to pound it down your throat. Um, and I, I wonder if what we're seeing, so you mentioned the self-inserts being an issue, um, you know, that to me suggests, well, that's kind of like an excess of pleasure being taken by the author. Whereas the trad pub, uh, the the villainous kind of dislikable characters are because it's propaganda. Do you think it's right to say that what we might be seeing is we have on one side an excess of escapism, and on the trad side we have an excess of propaganda? Is that is that does that seem to hold water to you? I would say yeah, that's actually yeah, totally accurate. Yeah, and I would say yeah. How oh, do you God, think sorry. that? No, how do we think you, we ended up there? Like, so I definitely think that there needs to be some backlash to the, um, essentially the propagandistic political nonsense coming out of trad pub. But like, 
it seems like there is a, is it like an overcorrection? Is that what's happening? I think at least my personal theory is that more than anything, it's just kind of like, you know, there's just, there's nobody to kind of, um, there's no, you know, overseer to kind of just tell some of these people like, you know, like, uh, you know, this might be like, you know, pleasant for you to, you know, write, but it's not totally pleasant for the reader, you know? I think, you know, that's kind of a case here. So it's just like a low bar to entry and because there's no, in one case, you have too many gatekeepers on the trad end and the gatekeepers are all political actors. Whereas on the other end, the problem with Iron Age is that there aren't any gatekeepers. And so you get all of the uh, undesirables. Is that what we're, what we're suggesting? I would say, yeah, it's like even more so than a gatekeeper. It's just like, there's not really anyone to just give somebody a second opinion, you know? Yeah, and, and and so we end up with kind of, uh, let's say, all the lower end stuff. Now, that kind of brings into questions. You mentioned self-answers, but there's going to be a lot of other issues too, right? Um, you know, what I see quite a lot, and you tell me if you see this, uh, I have noticed from the Iron Age end of things that there is a scorn from, from yeah, anything or scorn for anything that smacks at all of what the, let's say, trad published side is pushing or the academic side in particular is pushing. So anything that that, that other opposite end is doing at all gets like poo-pooed on quite a lot. Are you seeing that as as well? Or do I need to list a, a few of the things that I might be thinking about? Oh, no, I've seen that totally. Admittedly, I've like, at least conversation-wise, even partaken in that. Oh, I, I have as well, right? Um, and like, if we jump back to our definitions of literary versus genre, I think uh, we can kind of see what's getting perhaps pushed and what's getting left behind. Um, and then I think we can kind of join them together and talk perhaps about our own fiction because, um, you know, the reason I invited you on is because I've noticed that in uh, I've gotten a chance, I've been privileged to to read a lot of your your work, particularly works in progress. And there, I've, the thing I've noticed all the time is that you are constantly striving to achieve certain things that I see being left out of a lot of people's fiction. And I really lament seeing them being abandoned. So what is being abandoned? What? Uh, well, let's start with this. This is my specialty, right? Uh, artfully composed prose, right? Actually caring about the composition of your work and having the way that the story is written be something that is, let's say, worthwhile in and of itself, even before you get to the content. Obviously, you need good content. But um, I, I have seen that that has been almost utterly abandoned by the Iron Age. Am I, am I right in my assessment of that? Absolutely. I would say I have read a lot of stuff where, yeah, it's the, you know, the prose was kind of, um, I'm trying to think of how to put this. It was just kind of like as straightforward as possible, you know, to the point where it almost kind of sounded like, you know, like a, a Wikipedia editor was just kind of like recounting these events in a summary. I have seen that as well. Yeah. That's, uh, unfortunately hyper prevalent. Right. Um, and you know, if you, 
if you look at the academic side or on uh, the trad publish side even doesn't do this as well but certainly once you push all the way to the academic end they really focus on let's say making your composition somewhat uh, not somewhat you know careful you, you care about this quality of sound and the style and how the style integrates in with other elements of your work. Um, and I, I think that's an issue. Um, I've also seen, let's say, the embrace, the people embracing the idea that, okay, well, this is just for entertainment. This is a plot-driven work. Therefore, I don't have to care about, let's say, making my characters... I don't want to say real, but I do want to say deep or make uh, round and dynamic successfully. That gets into the whole character interiority thing. Um, how about on the in terms of Iron Age, do you see a lot of character interiority? I know we know people who do do it and do it well, um, but in, in general, what do you see in terms of, let's say, deep characters, we'll call them? That one for me, it's been another mixed bag. I have seen some where, you know, yeah, there was a lot of character depth, you know, that really made me connect with them. But others, uh, it was kind of just, you know, it was kind of like what I said with the pros. Where it's just kind of like this series of events just following this uh, guy or girl around. And, you know, we never really get to see inside of them or, you know, anything like that. And unfortunately, you know, when it's kind of, you know, things are just kind of laid out like that, it really does not give me much of a reason to care about what happens to them yeah it because because the reality is right you've got uh for those people have probably heard me say this before the truth is you have a story that story has uh characters that we need to care about because if we don't care about the characters at all then nothing is really at stake if there's nothing at stake that means the plot has no tension because the plot is the stakes being well put at stake and you get to see is this going to resolve itself is it going to develop into another complication that drives up the stakes um and you need characters you care about so you care about that but if if you don't then you don't have stakes you don't have tension if you don't have tension there's no reason to read through the plot the pacing will grind to a halt um and it doesn't really matter you know how much thematic depth you have right this might be a critique of the academic side if no one cares about anything going on in the story but also on the other side of that if you don't have any thematic depth if it's if it's raw an attempt at raw plot driven escapism i think that that can also ruin let's say ruin your character just as easily how how do i mean that well We'll go through a few things in terms of quality of writing, and then we will we'll talk a little bit about, I think, taste and maybe go over some of our fiction. Because right now we're kind of in this this ether space, this kind of amorphous, like moving around or drifting around, I should say. So I have this list of what makes quality fiction, but I don't want to just read off my list. So Torin, if you could just start listing a few things, uh, think it through as as you need to. When you think of a quality piece of fiction, what's let's even just start with one. What's one thing that you you need? You need you need to have a quality piece of fiction. One thing I I would say I need is uh, I you know I kind of need things to be fleshed out clearly and at least 
you know, described to some level of detail where things are envisionable, you know, um, almost kind of like, I feel like when the, the author kind of almost treats the setting like a character, I always find that very effective. Um, I need something, you know, again, the character does not even have to be relatable. They don't have to look anything like me. They don't have to think anything like me, but I need some reason to see that they're actually a person, you know, that they have, you know, autonomy, I guess I, I could say, you know, that they're not just a yeah. word or a name. So that fits two of these bullets I have. So the first one is settings that immerse. So you need to feel oriented in the world that the story is taking place in. So you can understand the direction things are going and what's happening and what has a consequence, right, in, in that terms of that setting. And you need characters that are compelling. So that's characters that are interesting, but kind of either sympathetic or that in some way, shape or form, you're invested in what happens to them. Um, on top of that, I would throw in like you need, uh, I mentioned before plots with stakes that produce tension. I kind of already ran over that. Anything else? So we've got characters that are compelling plot with stakes, settings that immerse people. What else might you want in, in the book that you pick up? Uh, let's see. Hmm. Off the top of my head. I suppose like some of these would kind of just be subjective, but you know, a, a setting that, you know, has things I find personally interesting that always helps, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, just uh, details that make me want to kind of explore more, you know, of like the world it's set in and, and, you know, just know more about, you know, what the author has cooked up. That always helps. Um, I know that's not always a given. Um, uh, let's see. I guess uh, just interesting character interactions, you know, those are always those are always a big plus as well. Yeah, so like, uh, you know, character interactions that carry the conflicts forward, um, you know, that, that kind of fits in with the, the plot, so plot and setting. Uh, also here I have, uh, you know, prose that is, you know, please, pleasant or pleases to read, right? You, you have to, we mentioned before, just any book that's good has better prose. Like it, you don't improve, or rather I should say, you will only ever improve a book by improving its prose. You won't make it a worse book by making it better written, kind of by definition. So that's something that just that goes with any book of, of good quality. And I think a theme that speaks truly is is another one of those, right? If the theme speaks to you and it teaches you something, it makes you feel more like you're you're more from coming out of the experience, then that's also going to be something that improves your work. Um the question is like, well, why why list this list of quality aspects of fiction? Because I've you know, if you actually look at all of that, you know, characters, plot, setting, uh, quality of the composition, the theme, those those things are constant among all works, right? It, it's not a matter of uh, whether it's literary or genre. Every book improves itself from having all of those. Why list all all the way through this? Because I I really do fear that the Iron Age is aspiring in some part. Obviously, there's really great modern writers, um, uh, but I'm watching this thing go down, and I'm looking at what people are saying, and I think that they are aspiring downward, and I think it's an overcorrection. I think that 
there's a focus on some things that do matter. So there is a focus on plot, and I think that's good, right? Because like if the plot is too slow, like no one's going to get through it. It grinds to a halt. Um, I think there is a focus on setting, right? Definitely you see the, the world builders of the modern day. Uh, they really, really dig into that, and that does harken back to the fiction of the past quite often. However, we are seeing characters that are not compelling quite often. We are seeing prose that does not read well, and we are seeing, as a consequence, uh, let's say, I don't want to call them bad arguments because the themes, the thesis of a work, so, so that kind of does fit, though, even if I don't want to say it, right? So we're seeing works that do not possess um, relevant themes, if they do, if they do, they're kind of, uh, let's say, things that are already known, already obvious, and they kind of come off a bit propagandistically, like the author knew the answer going in and was just really trying to put a new skin on something that is an, a kind of old lesson that isn't as relevant to our particular time and place. So I guess... What am I trying to What am I trying to get out here? I think, I think that we should pay attention to what works we're producing and what kind of tastes we have. Uh, you might have heard me pitch this idea before and, and tell me what you think of it. I think that there's such thing as good and bad taste, and what I the way I define that is good taste, virtuous taste makes you better it makes you able to do more right it makes you uh so if you consume something that is good for you right think of nutritionally it improves your health and that enables you to do more with your life than you could otherwise if something is decadent or vicious it perhaps slowly perhaps quickly erodes your ability to do to, to do better um you know if you're an author and you constantly read let's say things that are vicious, things that are decadent, when you go to produce your fiction, it will actually hamper your ability to produce good fiction, except for those other people who also also have decadent tastes. So, you know, people who like to eat candy and nothing else but candy, who are suffering from diabetes um, and unable to, you know, get up enough energy to go do the things that they actually really want to do in life and then suffer all the long-term consequences that come off of that. Like they might say, well, no, I really like, um, what's that one thing that, uh, ate way too many of when I was younger. It's one of the Wonka candies. Uh, it's not snickerdoodle. That's the wrong name. It's, a, it's a, like the licorice too, but the stuff stuffed inside, you know what I'm talking about, Torin? Uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, you said it was like, Hmm, like licorice, you said it was. It was the Wonka candy. Yeah, I, uh, if we think of the name, if, you, if you're listening in the comments, please let us know what the, those things are called. Uh, I remember my friend of, like went to like Warp Tour and someone was giving out boxes and boxes of them, and he came home with a box and he's like couldn't eat anymore, and he just gave me a whole box, and I like ate. It's back in high school, just ate them, and it. Uh, I can't believe I'm not in a diabetic coma right now to this day. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the, the, what do you think of that idea that you actually, as an individual, your taste, what you like, is determined by what you habituate yourself to, and that could be better or that could be worse? 
do you think I'm overstating something there? Oh, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, like, yeah, if, you know, basically, I think in a way, like, any creative person's taste, like, that's kind of uh, almost kind of what fills out their, uh, I I guess I should say creative profile, you know, because obviously they take inspiration from these things. You know, if somebody's, like, only inspiration is, like, you know, poorly written, like, isekai, you know, I don't trust that anything that comes out of them is going to be particularly compelling. No, it, it's just like the person who, like, compared to, like, pornography use, right? Like, people go down dark, dark pathways where things have to get more and more extreme in the direction of their particular vice, and then it gets out of their control, and then they habituate themselves into sometimes really despicable viciousness, if you will. Um, and I think that's definitely can be the case with our fiction. Um, and I think at this point, I, I should pr- perhaps try to prove my case because I'm sure there's plenty of people, if they've listened this far, thank you very much to this. Uh, I, I've been rambling on co- for quite a while. But I, I, I guess I want to convince all the authors out there to... Uh, I, I put out a podcast mm-hmm. called Read Your Vegetables, but like re- to to be able to stomach things that will actually improve them and improve their writing that they perhaps won't like at the beginning of reading it. And I think that they will struggle to write at the beginning of trying to write it. Um, but I but I think that's that's right, because if you look back and tell me if this is true for your inspirations, right? Because we talk about you you write more and more like what you're inspired by. But if you look back at the great works, or even the old pulps, they did not abandon things like the quality of prose. They weren't hyper-consistent because they were writing on a tight deadline, so they had to be quick. Uh, But they didn't abandon those things. I don't think they abandoned themes. Like classic science fiction was all about the, you know, speculative themes that they were pushing toward. Um, you know, sometimes their characters weren't as compelling as others, particularly in the pulp era, but their, uh, their, their plots were usually well, well paced and the settings were weird often, right? The, the settings were un- unusual, um, uh, to say the least. So they, they had some interest in them. They, uh, you know, my case, that's what I think. So are you, do you think the same for your inspirations Were they, were they of the past aiming higher? let's say, than the, our, our contemporary Iron Age writers? I would definitely say so. Yes, without a doubt, really. All right. At least, well, you know, all for... the ones I can think of off the top of my head, for sure. Yeah, so without further ado, I guess what we'll, what we'll do um, is let's go over... Uh, I've got an old piece of fiction that I wrote... Um, Torn, I know you mentioned scrounging around for one of yours. Were you able to find anything? Uh, not currently. Let, uh, let me see if I can real fast. I think I might have something, but it might be a bit rough. No, that's that's fine, because this is this is from my uh, my book, Salt, Sand, and Blood. I won't read this whole section. It's up on my website. Uh, it's the interlude. Um, now, what I want to do is I'll find a particular section of it and I'll, I'll read for a little bit. And then what I want us to do is just to take it apart. Now, I haven't thought this all the way through beforehand, so perhaps this will burn, crash and burn, you know, be a disaster, but I don't think it will. So 
yeah, I'll start out with uh, this is a character I came up with that I've repurposed for my current Wand Smoke series, but this is like the only salvageable piece of salt, sand, and blood. And I didn't want to abandon it to a series I wasn't going to continue. So, this is the origin story of the character Kashim as originally envisioned. And he, he says in, in conversation with a few other characters around a, a bonfire in a Mlomo village, hell was born from the sea. It came on black sails on the eastern tide in the evening, in the guise of Gautaman slavers, from which we knew of no salvation, only to run and hide to, and to weary our eyes watching the horizon. But all that watching left us blind. So on the night of my twentieth solstice, in the midst of our ancestral worship, with the whole village night blind and torchlight and gathered on the beach, I saw the ships birth themselves from the ocean blackness, and I smashed the conch, that was to be their warning. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll do this paragraph and, and see how we feel about it. For the sake of ease of talking about it, I'll go ahead and send it. Should have done that before. Send it over to you, Torin, so you've got it. Sounds good. There you go. You can also, if you pull it up on my website, you can see like the piece around it. But so, yeah. So let's let's talk about what I was what I was doing here, Torin. What is your impression just from that little? The reading, if if any. Oh, I actually, I believe I've read this before. Um, I think this is very effective. Uh, it really, you know, especially like you know, in not so many extra words, I feel like you very, you really, you know, kind of convey just the sense of danger, just you know, with just the mere sight, you know, kind of of these slavers, you know, um, just basically appearing in the night, you know, when everybody is, you know, obviously just has their guard down, is least expecting it. Yeah. Is there anything in particular? Because what I, I'm trying to find, because uh, I I know I've got an idea about what I was trying to do, writing this. Um, is there anything about, let's say, the way that it's written, or the particular focus on perspective, which we haven't mentioned that word, but perhaps should have, um, that might be useful for those, let's say, I suppose we count as the Iron Agers as well. We're in the indie space. Um, but anything that they they could perhaps take that we identify um, to make this easier, I'll slowly read through and then like if something pops out at you as I do, uh, just let interrupt me and then say what it is that you think is happening. So the first sentence in Umlomo village, hell was born from the sea. It came on black sails on the eastern tide in the evening in the guise of Gautaman slavers for which we knew of no salvation. Only to run and hide and to weary our eyes watching the horizon. I guess oh, I jump in right there. Yeah, go Sorry. ahead, jump. I'd say like, yeah, first, like, you know, hell was born from the sea. Like, you know, just right there, that's something I don't see them do, you know? I mean, in a lot of these, like, they would almost just kind of say, like, the ship, you know, the slaver ships appear appeared on the horizon. And that's kind of like, you know, in a lot of these, like, that's all you'd get. You know, yeah. you don't. What get am I doing there? That... What is it? What am I doing that they're missing? Uh, I I actually don't know the dir- I can't recall the direct word for the direct term for it at this moment. Um, okay, so I can help out there. So what what I did there is I used a a metaphor, right? So it's a bit of figurative language. Um, so to say hell was born from the sea, obviously hell isn't literally hell, uh, but that. That is a bit of, we talked about character interiority. Um, so the character here, Kashim, 
is describing the the thing that tortured them because of what is hell, eternal damnation from which there is no escape. So that is the description of the threat that comes out from the sea. It is like hell, uh, right? Uh, to say it as a simile. But yeah, I've noticed um, with Iron Agers, there's a lot of discursion. Are you familiar with that term? I've heard it before. Yeah, yeah, it's literal, right? It, there's a tends to be a lack of the use of figurative language, um, and it's it's not just that there's a, a piece of figurative language. It's there's also what's called uh, it, like inserting perspective subjectivity, which is what I just described, right? It's uh, I'm using the perspective of Kashim and how he and the villagers think about a thing to describe a thing as he sees it with a metaphor. That that is the type of um, that when I when I complain about like the 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 prose not really being up to snuff, that's what I'm I'm complaining about not being there. Not that my little this is not that impressive for what I did there, right? The all the Iron Ages are capable of doing that, absolutely. But it seems like people are unaware that they should be doing it. So now on the in the next uh in the next sentence was there anything worth looking at so it came on black sails on the eastern tide in the evening anything in that that stands out to you i would say one thing that follows is from you know uh guatemalan slavers from which we knew sal uh, no salvation like there's another thing i don't see is you know again this is from you know Kashim's perspective where he knows that these, you know, we see just the reputation that these slavers have, you know, firsthand. Um, you know, you in a lot of these Iron Age things, you'd see no such thing. You know, again, it would just kind of be described, you know, I, I don't want to keep falling back on this, but almost kind of just like, a, you know, a Wikipedia writer is just kind of observing and, you know, recounting the, all of the events. Yeah. You know, and then For those... go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, and then, you know, before we have these, you know, a lot of uh, good setting details that kind of just set the atmosphere too, you know, like on the e Eastern Tide in the evening, you know, I think even stuff like that almost sometimes would kind of just be glossed over. In fact, I have seen things where even like the time of day is, you know, not even really mentioned. And I just kind of like, you know, put down as if the reader just kind of knows exactly what the author is thinking. Yeah, in terms of the time of day, the reason, like, because you might think, is it really important that it's in the evening? And I would answer as uh, an author, yeah, because, like, the tone, damn it, like, the evening is when the sun goes down, things are getting dark, you're entering into the night when predators come out, right? Those are all connotations. Things that the word evening, uh, in a, you might have heard of thick and thin concepts, evening is a thick concept. Right, it, there are so many associations that evoking the word at the right time uh, will color a bunch of the words around it. Um, in terms of, uh, you mentioned the perspective, right? We know of no salvation. For those of you who are wondering what that is, essentially it's a um, attaching back to the sentence before, because I said hell is born from the sea. So you need salvation from hell. That's an that's essentially a biblical illusion. So particularly if, uh, even if you're not religious, you know, if you're in the West and you have this history of Christianity, it's going to tie back to your emotions around the 
the concepts in the religion of Christianity, Judaism as well, really. And you could even say Islam. So it's like the, the whole Abrahamic triad of religions that's going to hit at some emotional point because I'm using essentially an illusion in the form of a metaphor. Um, did you catch anything? Uh, I'll, I'll read that sentence again because there's something else in there. I want to see if you hear it. This is a, this is a, a, a bit of sound. Uh, I do this a lot. I actually have this fixation with it, perhaps to a, a detriment, my own detriment, right? So it came on black sails on the eastern tide in the evening in the guise of Guatam enslavers, from which we knew of no salvation, only to run and hide and to weary our eyes watching the horizon. Yeah, I did know just the way it's read. I don't want to say it's read like a poem, but it's kind of read almost in this, uh, you know, it comes off the tongue in this very, I guess, like uh, pleasant, almost kind of rhythmic way is the way I would describe that. Yeah, there's a bit of meter there, uh, and I purposefully put that in when I'm when I write. Uh, this also slows down my rate of production, so there's this doesn't come for free, right? Like I write <laughs> for those of you who who know who know me uh, as much as we can know each other here on the internet, you'll know that I don't write that much a day, even though I spend I think a lot of time doing it. And uh, what you're hearing there is a natural meter. So this is the use. If you study poetry, there's stressed and unstressed syllables. Um, and if you ever try to write, this is actually a good reason. Go write like sonnets, right? Or any form of uh, like the formal poems, the ones with forms that are strict about their meter. Um, and uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? So like if you've got like uh, the the type of metric feet, and then you have the number of um, essentially feet in the in the poem let's go and study it it's worthwhile just getting the basics because you'll start to hear it when you're when you're reading your own work and that smoothness as it comes off the tongue is really important because you'll notice that sentence is massive right like how many uh you have like one massive clause and another clause and then is there another one no it's only two clauses how did i manage that right yeah there's only one comma in that whole sentence and you would think there's more with how long it is but it doesn't need it because of the rhythm did you notice anything else uh, about the sound i'd say that it it doesn't quite rhyme but it almost kind of uh i guess maybe that's this goes back to what you were saying earlier but you know I, i'm trying to think of like how to accurately uh say this it, i guess like word. yeah maybe Oh, God. So that almost rhyme you're hearing is assonance. It's the repeated um, vowel sound, I. Oh, I see. Yeah, so tied, guys, uh, hide, eyes. Right, having that sound purposefully used over and over, like my use of it over and over again, gives a feeling it, it actually does literally rhyme also but it gives a feeling of rhyming in the same way that it works with music and that mat that fits in with the meter now i could have done it better here this isn't a great use of it but it's there and that is part of what you're hearing i think oh absolutely yeah yeah, back, so, yeah now that you pointed out it's it's plain as day yeah, but yeah, this is why we're we're going through this particular example. We'll go through the the rest, and if you've like managed to pick out a piece, we can go through that. Um, 
So, but all that uh, watching left us blind. Is there any? Is there anything? Uh, just interrupt me again, like we did before. So, all that watching left us blind. So, on the night of my twentieth solstice, in the midst I'd go ahead of our an- sorry, jump, sorry, I didn't mean to whenever. stop you mid sentence. But um, yeah, it's like even that, you know, is again a, a very good detail that I just do not think you'd come across. You know, like I, you know, this more interiority that just would be glossed over in a lot of pulps. You know, it kind of it shows you that you know this uh, tribe, you know, these slavers are a great danger to them. You know, and it, I feel like it really it hammers home just how much these you know uh, slavers are the bane of their existence. You know. Yeah. Well, here's a question. You should be able to hopefully be able to answer it if I conveyed this well. So when Kashim says, but all that watching left us blind. So the watching is a watching for the slavers, right? So what do you think he, because Kashim means something about that, right? What does he mean when he says all that watching left us blind? My initial, what I initially would assume is that it left them fatigued, but it almost seems like it's kind of, it means something else instead, like perhaps I almost kind of get the feeling, actually, now that you, you know, point this out, that maybe like the slavers, kind of a, uh, took advantage of this and changed tactics or something like that, possibly. Yeah. Well, let's say, what if I use the word tunnel vision? Oh, okay. I see. So basically, I guess uh, fatigue. Then. Well, don't think physically. Think figuratively right so they're not literally blind it's not that they literally don't see the slavers but they're so worried about the slavers they're not looking for anything else Mm, i see yeah so obviously i could go ahead go ahead i was i was say so the slavers basically came in in some way that they would overlook uh yeah uh well in in a in a sense, right? Because um, if we go to, I'll, I'll I'll read through to the end, and then you can kind of connect this back in, right? So, but all that watching left us blind. So, on the night of my twentieth solstice, in the midst of our ancestral worship, with the whole village night blind, as he's calling night blind, in torchlight, and gathered on the beach, I saw the ships bird themselves from the ocean blackness, and I smashed the conch was. That was to be their warning. So they were so worried about the slavers that they did not think of the fact that they might be betrayed. Mm, I see. Yeah, and there's there's a bunch of stuff in there. I don't want to uh, just because for those of you listening, I'm not trying to talk up my work. This is there's a lot about this that's kind of messy um, that I could have done much better but I, I do think there's a good example here is there anything in that that stuck out to you um i would just say like in general just again just the details you know i feel are very you know just you know again kind of put me in this situation you know yeah, I'll, uh, pitch, I'll pitch questions at you so what do you think of uh 20th solstice was do you think that was overwrought that i overdid it instead of just saying my 20th birth like like 20th birthday i wouldn't say so i feel like you know that's kind of been you know we've seen that this is a, you know a tribal society i feel like you know that is actually a rather again an immersive and quite realistic detail for that setting 
You know, I mean, if not solstice, they usually say uh, summer, winter, etc. Yeah. And then if I say the words solstice, mist, uh, worship. That again, like, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I wanted you. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, again, that conveys the details. I'm picturing these as, you know, kind of like an African-inspired uh, tribe. I don't know if I'm right on that or not, but that that's what that, you know, immediately brings to mind is it kind of, you know, it it does flesh out these a lot of these uh just kind of the tone and the atmosphere and just, you know, yeah. in in general the setting. Did I get the sound right? Cuz uh, cuz what I was going for there if you listen uh like solstice, midst, ancestral worship. The the continue s and st sounds uh, particularly toward the uh, the ends of words, uh, I was hoping that that would create a kind of fluid effect, right? So on the night of my twentieth solstice, in the midst of our ancestral worship. Oh, I see. Admittedly, yeah, some of this sometimes I don't look that deep, but you no, know, I see what you're you're <laughs> saying now. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes, like I said, I I could have hit this better, but um, for those of you guys listening out there. What I'm a- what I was aiming at there is not just what I wrote down, but the let's say I, this sounds really pretentious, but it's like the sonic like sound effect um, that it has from the particular words and their arrangement around each other. Um, so the use of the word solstice alongside ancestral worship gives you the feeling that this is a village without like a, like an almost African inspired village without me having to describe it. Like I have said nothing about these villagers, but by saying 20th solstice in the midst of our ancestral worship with the whole village, describing as village, night blind and torchlight and gathered on the beach, right? So uh, I won't go on and on and on and on. The, the, well, I guess what I was trying to, to show our, our fellow Iron Agers is that you can do a ton of stuff in a ton of, like in a tiny space just by giving your fiction a little bit more attention by by focusing a little bit more on the composition side, right? Picking your words carefully, that's addiction. Arranging the sentence so that it reads with a particular rhythm. That's uh, you have to understand syntax well. You have to be able, you have to have good grammar so that you can make longer sentences. You have to know how to use more complex punctuation. Because if you can't, then you end up with a run-on sentence that goes on so long and it feels like I'm out of breath and I'm just reading like this and it feels really unnatural, blah, right? Um, so it's important to have, have that sense of rhythm. Um, I don't know. What do you, uh, I mean, I, I kind of think you already know the answer to this question. Tor, what do you think of my argument thus far? Do you think, do you think it's worth all the extra effort? I would say so, Absolutely. I could almost, you know, as somebody who's a visual artist, I would actually, I think a perfect comparison really is, you know, in something like comics, you know, where, or, you know, manga, where a lot of this stuff is, you know, a lot of it isn't black and white solely to save time. But if you get something that's in color, you know, it's going to stand out a lot more, you know, even if it takes much more time, you know, I'd almost, I would say actually that prose is pretty much the equivalent to that. You know, you can get the bare bones plot or you can, you know, get something that really kind of uh, makes it stand out more, even if there's a lot of extra effort needed to put that in. Yeah, and, and I think that's really how you get 
like an author's style or in grad school we'd call this like the author's voice um you only get that by pushing yourself and and trying to think what really fits the work i'm doing because obviously i like to use a lot of um repeated like a lot of alliteration uh oscillants and consonants a lot i like to rhyme um i have a particular kind of long flowing meter to a lot of my work uh, but you don't have to have that, right? Like if you want to have something punctual, short, cutting, you can do that. If you want to pick out words that are very harsh um, and almost mechanical, perhaps for a science fiction uh, story where you're dealing with these machines, yeah, you could do that. Um, there's all kind of layers of feeling, like you mentioned, like color that you could choose or color schemes that you could impress upon your work. And you could also make your work way more vivid and more efficiently written uh, just by by focusing a little bit on that style and not giving it to the pretentious academics right like why i guess this is my thing is like why are we doing that like why i almost hate to say this but why are we aspiring to iron and not gold that would be my that would be my question um and and if you're out there and you're an iron iron age writer like you know, let, let me, let me know, let us know, um, why, like why iron and why not try to be, let's say to achieve the highest level of skill that you can and to produce the best work of art that you could manage to produce as an individual, right? Like why, why aim down? That's my question. So during all that big rambling, did you, were you able to find anything, uh, Torin? Uh, yeah, this is actually something I'm, I'm more, you know, writing wise, this might need a bit of work, but this is something I'm more proud of, I guess, in theme than I, or uh, just um, topic than, uh, you're right, hang on, there we go. Yeah, then send it over to me so I can read uh, it as you go through. Let me just make sure I got everything in here. Oh, wait, I actually misspelled one word here. <laughs> okay, there we go. Yeah, this is st uh, still needs... Like I said, it needs to be fleshed out a bit, but. Okay, cool. Awesome. Uh, right, go is, ahead and read. It's from the first chapter uh, t told through the uh, uh, perspective of my antagonist. Is he's basically in hell and uh, has to avoid a patrol of, I guess, what we could call demons. They came into sight about five seconds after he'd hit him, hidden himself. More infernal hunters of his kind mercifully oblivious to his presence. As he watched them in silent terror, he realized he'd seen their particular kind patrolling the ice caves before. From the neck down, they were much like him, mummified, naked, burned, and desiccated. From the neck up, however, they were creatures of unrivaled beauty, mesmerizing women's faces, lips as luscious as silk pillows, with glossy black hair and skin like ivory. They conversed in a language that sounded like an animal being skinned alive. They were living lures, drawing the impulsive to them with innocent eyes and demure smiles. The lust of their victims always blinded them to the armaments they carried. Horrendous instruments designed to inflict maximum pain. Hooked pokers to pull off skin. Toothed blades to saw through ligaments. And needled batons to force down orifices. He had once seen another like him fall into their grasp from afar. Back in the caves. The things they proceeded to do to the fool were too horrific to recount in detail. Oh, 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 oh that was good. Oh, thank you. No, I, I, oh, I, God, man. 
I can see where I screwed up and kind of like messed the uh, went back and forth between what I was trying to convey. But yeah, thank you. I know you did that. Though. There's tons about this. I could I could ramble on, but like uh, I want to give you give you the chance um, to give you the chance first, and I'll, I, I can laud all kind of praise on this. Is going to be fun to go through, man. Um, so uh, I know I, I read through, and then I had you go through it before. Um, let's see. We'll, we'll do that again. So I'll read your work uh, sentence by sentence. And when something comes up, jump out and just it, it, tell me what you think you did. It's as funny as that is to say, right? Okay. Um, all right. We'll, we'll play this game again. So they came into sight about five seconds after he'd hidden himself. More infernal hunters of his kind, mercifully oblivious to his presence. As he watched them in silent terror. He realized he'd, be, he'd seen their particular kind patrolling the ice caves before. From the deck down, they were much like. I guess that. I, I should probably like try and yeah. I, I think I missed an opportunity. Um, I guess like I was trying with at least the first two senses. I was kind of trying to like convey how close of a call this was. I, I guess like the the context leading up to this probably didn't do the best. Um, obviously I only, I only I know that, but. I guess, like, yeah, it's like maybe I could uh, do better to kind of raise the stakes here, but I guess I was trying to, like, really, you know, I don't know how effective I was at this, but just kind of show that he, this kind of precarious situation where he's watching these things, you know, that basically, um, I don't know where I was going with this. Um, I guess, like, you know, he basically barely missed the window to just basically evade these horrible things, and he's just, yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm rambling. I know. It's, no, it's good. Look, there's a couple of things I liked about these. For the, I think you could point out. So I'll, I'll jump in. So the the first sentence is, is uh, a decent sentence in terms of any type of fiction, right? That's It's an orienting sentence. They came, they, so there's some somebody important. They came into sight about five seconds after he'd hidden himself. So what that says is like, okay, he is hiding, right? You're pointing out the um, what you chose to describe is not that he's crouching behind something and like to describe the protagonist, you're describing the fact that there's these people and they, they just came into sight just a few seconds ago and he's hidden himself. The word hidden is useful here because it conveys to us that there, the stakes are this guy being found. He just, he just hid. So we know without you having to tell us that it's really bad if they find him. Um, which I think is good. So for, again, the people listening out there, it's just a particular choice of word. Hidden was a good word to use to convey what the stakes are without being, uh, let's say, discursive, all discursive about it. More infernal hunters of his kind. That's really interesting because it, said, it suggests that we have, um, let's say, the evil hunting the evil, right, of his kind. Uh, they're of the same kin because that's you know where that word's derived from mercifully oblivious to his presence that conveys the danger it's merciful that they're oblivious if they knew where he was there would be no mercy there would be pain and suffering and death as he watched them in silent terror he realized he'd seen their particular uh kind patrolling the ice caves before uh, from there we're, we're we're moving through with the rest of the description so um I'll go ahead and keep reading you jump out when you when you hear something that you wanna 
you want to tell me what you did you think you did well and 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 really look for the stuff you did well because you missed you missed it Torin. what you did well that time <laughs> all right i'm so. also good at articulating my thoughts you know on just on the spot sometimes admittedly it's difficult it's difficult but that's why we're doing this podcast right because I, what i want if, for you listening out there i want people to be able to read their own fiction as they're writing and as they're revising and to and to see these very things and then therefore to see the opportunities to input these things so from the neck down they were much like him mummified naked burned and desiccated i want to stop I, there and ask yeah pretty much i guess like that He's already been kind of described a little bit, and I kind of wanted that to show that just reinforce that, you know, basically that this this basically isn't hell. Obviously, is um, you know I've I said before, but I kind of wanted that to just reinforce just what this situation looks like. You know how, you know, I guess this is not some just noble, you know, hero hiding from these things, but basically this guy's, uh, you know, a damned soul that's. Hiding from these things that you know are only you know worse than him, just because you know how outright monstrous they are. I suppose if that makes any sense. That does make sense, but it, it does kind of miss out on the most impressive bit of this. <laughs> so, um, well, I will point it out uh, for all of our sakes, right? So, when you choose the word, use the word something like mummified, you didn't have to do that. Um, I think there's two, there's a thing before that too, much like him. So you are telling the reader that these people, this kind are, are similar. You're describing them as you're describing him in one description. Um, and the word mummified communicates quite a lot because it evokes the, the image of a mummy. And when we see a mummy, we see this corpse that's been hollowed out it's been like ritually disemboweled uh, and is like this usually blackened uh, like skin over a skeleton. And it's in this almost always in this contorted state. And it's been preserved in this gross way where there's enough of it left that it's, it's not like a skeleton. It's like, it's unclean. It's like shriveled flesh. Um, and I think, you know, you've got the the more discursive words that come after naked, burned, and uh, desiccated. But I think leading with the word mummified really qualifies all those other words and makes them much richer. And then we continue on. Uh, from the neck up, however, they were creatures of unrivaled beauty. Um, I like that a lot. Uh, you know, uh, the... We, we could spend time on it if we want. We'll keep going. We can come back to it. Mesmerizing women's faces, lips as luscious as silk pillows with glossy black hair and skin like ivory. They conversed in a language that sounded like an animal being skinned alive. I guess I'll go ahead and interrupt there. I, I'm actually, yeah, answer me this because I'm not sure how effective the, the placement of that last one is when compared to what came before it. I, I feel like I, I actually I don't know if that works just kind of jumping between the grotesque and the beautiful and then to the grotesque again. I mean I do think that that worked in terms of the um, the tone back and forth because you're you're supposed to be confused, right? Like you that's even what you've said like that it's 
um, in the next sentence, they were living, uh, yeah, they were living lures, right? So what you did is you showed us, this is, I guess, um, I guess you could you describe this as like a show don't tell rule, right? You showed us that they were living lures. They're horrific, but their faces are like lush and beautiful. And then they speak in this awful language. Uh, it's almost like <laughs> this is a very, uh, you know, male centric thing to say, but when you see a really attractive woman and then she starts talking and they're like the things coming out of her mouth just make you cringe. It's like it's like that feeling, right? Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's very disappointing. Um but in this case it's horrifying. Uh you also did something with sound. I I want you to pick it out because I thought it was really good. It was it was good for two reasons. So I, I'll read it, and I'm going to emphasize the sound. Mesmerizing women's faces, lips as luscious as silk pillows, with glossy black hair and skin like ivory. They conversed in a language that sounded like an animal being skinned alive. They were living lures. Do you hear that? I do. What, what's happening there, Torn? What did you do? What did you do, Torn? I, I can't remember the term. Um... <laughs> I know it was just it was just said uh, meter alliteration. Oh, alliteration, got it. Yeah, but you know, there's also some amount of meter produced. But I want to focus on the alliteration. Do you hear it? The what what sound is being alliterated? What's being repeated? They conversed in the language. I'd say, I'd say, kind of like uh, lips, luscious, uh, like ivory lures. Silk pillows, yeah, uh, living, the L sound. Um, now, for those of you out there who might think that's arbitrary, it's not. So um, just really quickly to yourself, Torin, like read over the word, all the words that have L's in them and pay attention to how it feels and how easy it is. Lips as luscious as silk pillows with glossy black hair and skin like ivory the conversational language sound like an animal being skinned alive they were living lures drawing you, the impulse to them i feel like that flows pretty uh quite naturally i suppose this i i think this is one of the ones that uh i actually read this aloud several times and i think that's probably how that came about that is right so for those who don't know there are certain letters uh, or really it sounds, it's not the letter itself, that produce um, a particular quality. And in this case, L's are soft. Like if you, all you have to do is like, la, la, like it's soft, it's like S's, like S's are smooth when you say them. And when you have like, you know, luscious lips, silk pillows, um, there's something about the flick of the tongue that's produced in the, the way that L sound sounds, that itself sounds soft, when you describe, that's why you describe like lips as luscious as silk pillows. There's like a magic that happens there with the sound. The sound matches what you're describing. You're describing lips, and those lips are luscious. And it, well, how luscious are they? Silk, something glossy and smooth that repeats that L sound into pillows, which also are soft, which also repeats the L sound. Uh, and then you have something like silk that's shiny, that also has the L, the glossy black hair. And uh, yeah, so it's like there's there's something that gets produced there. And I think naturally what ends up happening is the meter comes in. 
like a, particularly once you hit lips, lips as luscious as silk pillows with glossy black. Once you hit glossy black hair and skin like ivory, it, it breaks up a little bit. Um, but definitely when you get back to living lures, there's something about that they were living lures, drawing the impulsive to them with innocent eyes and demure smiles. Innocent eyes, demure lures. Demure and lures, they kind of pull that sentence together a little bit, right? You can kind of hear they were living lures, drawing the impulsive to them with innocent eyes and demure smiles. So uh, I, I could go on and on and on about that, but um, like that, that is like that, that helped evoke the image of their faces and particularly the particular parts of their faces you want to emphasize that then you can contrast so sharply with the horrific monsters that they are. Um, yeah, and that, that gets around to imagery, right? So I'm going to read this bit here. Uh, horrendous instruments designed to inflict maximum pain, hooked hokers to pull off skin, tooth blades to saw through ligaments, and needled batons to force down orifices. Ugh. Ugh. So... You you did a couple things there. What do you think you did that 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 worked? I I basically at least like I was like trying to really. I'm trying. Let me give me a second to articulate this. I was trying to kind of really like put the reader, uh, just show the reader kind of how vicious, like you know, the threat that these things are. Let me start over. I was trying to kind of show the reader just. I was kind of. I was trying to give them like just a sense of terror just at like the uh basically let me try to think of like basically the the weapon's purpose alone just their design is supposed to kind of instill this sense of terror in the reader um just kind of like describing you know the the I guess visible purpose of these things I suppose um sorry I'm not very good at kind of getting into the depth into these but um yeah, it's okay. I'll Basically, help us out. yeah. I, oh, go ahead. I was trying to stick the reader right there and convey just the sense of terror, just looking at these tools they carried. You know, well, with just all the you did. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you right. So you did a good job at this too. You used uh, in literature this is Im imagery. You know, imagery doesn't just. I've said this many times on the podcast. It doesn't just mean visual. It is any of the sensory functions. Um. You also did uh, some subjectivity. So horrendous instruments is a bit of subjectivity perspective of the narrator, right? So we uh, designed actually does some work here. Now you've got a little bit of discursion to inflict maximum pain, but the fact that these are horrendous instruments that are designed, the in, there's an intentionality behind them. What is their design? Uh, you have pain, pokers, pull off skin. So you have a bit of an alliteration that helps the flow of the sentence, but I'll, I'll, I want to call attention to the fact that these all of the all of the bits described are given intention and purpose, right? So the pokers have the purpose of pulling the skin off. That's what the word two is doing, right? And then you do it again. So two blades, two saw through ligaments. It's they are intended to saw through these ligaments, like it's a malicious actor, right? Needled batons, two forced down orifices and the idea of orifices is there's two things about orifices so 
one is the sound. When you to say orifices, you have to open your mouth. But you just told me that there's a needle baton that's going to be shoved down my mouth. But I have to open my mouth to say the word. Like you see what that does. Like it's like I'm imagining someone. It's like if you saw someone have one of these batons shoved down their throat. The last thing you would want to do is open your mouth. Right. Mm. Yeah. So you just put me in that seat where I'm like, I don't want to even be saying this word because now I'm I, I'm experiencing secondhand the fear of having a freaking spike baton shoved down my throat. But beyond that, um, the word orifice orifice is vague. Right. It might not just be <laughs> horrifically. It might not just be your throat. That yeah, they, that's uh, what I was. I was trying to like ev evoke like a personal, I guess, squick among the reader with that. I guess that yeah. was my intention, really. Yeah. Right. Plainly. So, the, yeah, with that, the, the vagueness means that you might have my interpretation, or you might have a darker interpretation, or you might have both. And then it then it does two things at the same time, right? So that is super effective by being being vague. And then all, it, you've essentially layered multiple meanings into that one word um, that has been layered with intentionality through just the use of the word to, right? These things are there to do these horrible things. That's what they're designed for, the point of them. It's not that they're being misused. No, this is what they were being or were made for. Um, yeah, absolutely. That That is what really... It gave me a little bit of like a shudder as I listened to you read through this. Now, Torin, how much of that did you know that you meant to do as a curiosity or did you do intentionally? And how much of that was like you're seeing it now for the first time? Uh, quite a bit of it was not like the, you know, the thing we mentioned with orifice where it causes the reader to open their mouth, stuff like that. That admittedly was unintentional. Anything else? Yeah, unintentional? A, a lot of it. I um, just like generally, just generally, like uh, how we went over, like uh, a lot of like you know how it, uh, the just the flow and everything and the uh, alliteration. A lot of that, admittedly, was unintentional. Like I said, I'm still training myself on this, but I, you know, again, I still need to myself. You know, it's kind of funny that we're we're talking about this because I myself still need to learn to kind of you know look deeper into these things and see you know just uh, the pros and everything on you know the the level that you're talking about. It's funny because while that's true, you did write it. <laughs> yeah, even, that's true. Right. So, so one is like part of this. Again, this goes for the listeners as well, but this definitely goes for you, Torrent. Again, this is why I wanted to talk to you about this, is because I've I've gotten a chance to read a bunch of your work, and I see this stuff all the time, all the time in your work, and it, I'm impressed with it. I don't. I, I should say it more often than I do. Like occasionally, I'll throw comments in when we're doing a little critique sessions, but like that, there's. Uh, there's really something there and it's really impressive and it has a really profound effect. And I want to see this more. I do not see this. It's not even attention to detail, right? Because you just told me like, and I, I was, the same, I am the same way. Even to this day, when I'm writing, I'm not consciously aware of what I wrote until after I write it down. Then I look at it like we're doing right now. But there is something 
and maybe we could we could end the podcast off with this because this is a this is a real question. This is a question for all artists, I think. And maybe you have more experience because you're also a visual artist, which I am not. When you sit down and this stuff is coming out of you, right? This um the the quality of the, the artistic production of the fiction itself that we that we would like to see more in our iron age writers to the fact that i think they should be essentially we should be aspiring to be new golden age writers right just like if, if we're if we're turning through the cycles of history which i'm sure lots of our uh listeners are going to you know be subscribers of right like uh, the conservative idea that history goes in cycles um you know there's a i think a book recently the ford turning which i haven't read but i think it covers the same idea this is an old concept goes back to conservative historians and, and philosophers for a long time rather than say we are the we are the fallen iron why not return to the golden and the question that I was trying to ask that I, I distracted myself from is like, what is happening when we are aspiring to that, that, that makes this stuff come out? Do you have any idea what it is? Because I honestly don't. You, oh, you, you, you mean, uh, not like the dull pros, but you know, uh, what you're talking about, like the, the, the golden pros. Yeah. Like how, how does it like, like when I asked if I had to sit down and someone came up or yeah, someone came up to you and they said, Torin, how did you do this? Basically what I would tell them is, you know, and again, this is, you know, because I'm a visual minded person, this would not be the case, you know, with, uh, every, you know, writer that uh, I guess, uh, aspires to write like this, you know, it, obviously there, there's many different thought processes. I basically tell them I envision this almost kind of like a movie in my head. And I basically write down what I feel when I watch it, you know, like what I feel from my perspective, like, you know, visualizing these weapons, pretending I'm some invisible observer. I put down basically, I would say I describe what I feel when I think of these things. And I think, you know, that's kind of the key there is that, you know, there needs to be an emotional investment, you know, in what is being written down and described. Mm. Okay, so are you saying that because because the first part of that I've heard many people say um, who who fail to produce um, let's say the quality of prose that I would say is striving. I I won't say that we're sitting here achieving golden age prose. I don't. I, you know I, I think that would be too much. But I oh, think definitely. we're striving. But we're striving after it, right? We're trying, right? right? And I think that I've heard plenty of people who aren't doing that say the first part of what you said, that they visualize it. But what you're saying is it's like, okay, I visualize it and I don't write down what I see in my mind's eye. I write down what I feel as a product of my mind's eye. Is that right? Pretty much. I guess, you know, I don't hit that mark all the time, but that's, you know, I guess that's what I, I that's the goal. That's, you know, the objective is the best way to put that. Yeah. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I actually think I might have heard someone say that back when I was at the University of Tampa. Uh, I don't know if I did then or if it was after or when it, when it was, but that, like that, I think something like that's buried in my memory. If it's not, it's sh it should be because that's a really great thing. So it's it's not writing what you imagine. It's imagining 
and then experiencing it and writing the experience, the feeling down onto the page. That's when you aspire to, so we are to say, when we are aspiring toward golden age fiction, as opposed to iron, when we're aspiring to the highest that we can achieve, that's what we're aiming. Not, not to say you always hit that because I definitely don't always hit it. Uh, and you said you Neither don't do always I. hit it. Yeah. But that's when we're aiming there. That's how we aim. We aim by, by aiming at what we experience so that somebody else, uh, there we go. So that our, we're, what we're writing down is a communication of experience and not mere, mere image, images. It's the experience. That's what we want the reader to, 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 to be able to, to, to feel when they read. I would say that's absolutely it. And I think actually one thing kind of going back to why there's such a prevalence of, you know, this, you know, iron level prose is, and again, like I'm very, very guilty of this is that it's very tempting and very easy to just kind of fall back on just telling, you know, the reader what you see instead of feeling. Well, I got it. So this is this is where I heard this before. Um, it was after after grad school. I was teaching. Uh, I was teaching a literature course, and I was preparing a lecture. Um, and there were like quotes from different poets. I was on the poetry section of that course, and uh, I can't remember who said it. But when you're writing poetry, when you're writing poetry, you're not conveying the images. That primarily what you're you're meant to do. You're not even. That, I think it was maybe Robert Frost who said this. Um, it's you're not trying to get them to understand what what it is that you saw that you're writing the poem about. You're primarily trying to get them to understand how you felt in that moment. And I think it was Robert Frost. And if that is the case in poetry, it seems to also be the case in like prose and fiction. I would absolutely oh. say that's what it is. Yeah. All right. Well, that. Okay. That. Not, I. I. I guess it's something that I had heard before, but it wasn't until our conversation now that I've really come to ground, ground in with it. So, uh, this is why I love doing this podcast, man. I always learn something new. Um, yeah. So I think that about wraps it up. Is there anything else you wanted to cover before before we wrap this up, Torin? Uh. I think, yeah, no, I think um, that's pretty much it. I guess, like, maybe you could make an argument kind of, like, for, you know, the, the length argument for some kind of, like, you know, in, in favor of the uh, iron level people, you know. But I, I feel like, again, you know, if you just get, like, the story kind of out there without any any kind of thing to add more to it, like, you know, I, I guess, like, yeah, you could say that, you know, the novel is easier to read, but I, it's kind of like, you know, at what cost, you know, maybe that's like an, an argument I could see them making on the other side of things. Yeah. We'll have to have a follow-up conversation. Maybe, maybe do another three person conversation where we go back and forth between iron and gold. Uh, that, oh, that'd be such a cool, uh, cool name for the podcast, right? Uh, oh yeah. S- Swords of iron and gold, something like that. Uh, maybe that'd be a good name for a novel. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but yeah, no, I get it. I, I would say, uh, I, I guess for those who might make that argument, we'll end it off here. Even though I keep saying we'll end it off. Uh, apparently don't want to. Um, 
there remember that there's tastes that are good for you and there's tastes that are bad for you. And I think what's good for you is to aspire high. And it is easy. It's easier to eat, let's say, um, Kazazzles, Kazoozles? Kazoozle, is that the name of the Wonka candy? I've never heard that one. I was actually thinking that you're talking about Laffy Taffy, but I don't, yeah, I don't know. Oh, wait, hold on. I'm searching it up right now, right here, live on the podcast. Kazoozle, is that what it's called? Yes, it is. Uh, it's Kazoozle. Okay. We remember huh. that for the end of the podcast, you, it's easier to eat Kazoozles than it is, I don't know, like broccoli or asparagus or, um, I don't know, carrots or whatever else that you might might be eating. Uh, I eat a lot of habaneros. It's easier to eat Kazoozles than it is habanero peppers. Uh, but, <laughs> but nutritionally, the question is, what is it doing? to and for you as a person is it making one feel as though he is a hero without making him more like a hero i think that's the question i would ask and you know uh, and perhaps perhaps we'll leave it off there we're definitely going to have have to have that debate at some point or yeah we'll call it a debate because that'll get plenty of people over the internet excited about it uh the debate the battle between iron and gold uh so if you're listening out there, uh, thank you guys for joining us. Let us know what you think of the comments. Tell us if you think that we're a bunch of pretentious fool just gushing over each other's work. Um, or if you think we actually, you know, might be aiming at something worthwhile, if not hitting it, if not achieving it. Um, before we go, I'll send you guys off again to wildislelit.com. Uh, if you thought that our work was impressive, again, you can hire me as a line editor. and I can help you write in this very way whether you want to focus on uh, theme or you want to focus on style, uh, Wild Isle Style Guide is for you. Also check my work again on audio so you can listen uh, to the beautiful prose being read to you at wildislet.com for Once Book Broken. And I've got audio and other stuff and all kinds of things. Eventually, Torn, you got to have a place where I can, I can send people. Uh, but for now, uh, I guess thank you guys for listening and We'll see you guys next time.